Development Performance Anxiety. This episode, I'm joined by Jared Arteau and Brian McFadgen, also known as The Vacant Lots. They're definitely the coolest band from Burlington, Vermont. To realizing they had this great connection, they started writing and playing and working with some incredible people. They formed a tight bond with Alan Vega of Suicide, Dean Wareham of Galaxy 500, Sonic Boom, Anton Newcomb of the Brian Jonestown Massacre, and Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. They tell me how they managed to play their music live as a duo and still keep the depth. They have a new album out called Interzone. Pick it up from Fuzz Club Records or wherever you buy music nowadays. Follow the band at The Vacant Lots. Follow us at Performance ANX. Subscribe, rate, review, and share. And I'd like to thank Leah Shapiro for bringing Jared and Brian into the Performance Anxiety family. Okay, so if I do like, hey, this is my name, and then Brian says his name, and then I can do the like little blurb. Exactly. Hi, this is Jared Arteau. Uh, this is Brian McSagin. We're the Vacant Lots, and you're listening to Performance Anxiety Podcast. Our new album, Inner Zone, is coming out on June 26th on Fuzz Club. And thanks for your time. Uh, Brian, when you called a second ago, I, I hadn't started recording yet, and I'm just so used to doing this. I started speaking into my mic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm like, like, hey, can we do this on audio? Yes, I can. <laughs> it's, uh, I, you know, it's one of the weird things about doing this show is as soon as I'm sitting here, I'm talking to my mic in, in, cool. immediately, and it's just, it's just a habit at this point. Yeah, that's cool. So... Thank you guys for doing this, man. This is awesome. I'm, I've really been enjoying the, the music for a while now. Oh, thanks, man. Thanks for having us. Oh, my pleasure. So before we, we really get into the, to the meat of the vacant lots, I do want to publicly thank Leah Shapiro of Black Rebel Motorcycle Club for getting this together. She reached out one day and said, you have to get these guys on the show. And I said, awesome. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Leah. They're, they're incredible, man. Um, I'm glad she was able to hook this up for us. Me too. I I love I love the band. I've loved the band since the very first album. But Leah is just she's just the sweetest person on the planet. Yeah, she really is. Definitely. Yeah, super cool. Anyway, so, so now you guys. Uh, all right, so we got Jared and Brian. You guys are the band. So yeah, I want to know a little bit more about how you got into music in the first place. Um, were you playing in bands as as, as teenagers? Were you playing? band you know in, in high school marching band what and and what were your instruments uh and, and brian i've noticed one thing in the research mm-hmm. it, you're very quiet you haven't said a lot in the in in the interviews that i've seen and read and so i'm gonna make yeah. sure i get some answers from you <laughs> <laughs> yeah i tend Don't to talk a lot don't let me hide in the corner all right brian's got <laughs> brian's gotten used to it um <laughs> so all right so let's start with 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 jared yeah, now that uh, I said I want I want answers from Brian, we're going to start with Jared. I'm just going to start talking the whole time. Um, <laughs> so, how did, what was your first instrument? When did you start playing? What was it? I remember, like, I think back in elementary school, they, I think you had to choose an instrument. Like, it, it was some, like, a, you could choose from, like, a fucking flute or a clarinet <laughs> or yeah, a like- violin. And I remember like every time, like you had to get your parents permission. And every time I like went home to like pitch it to my parents, like I, I want to do clarinet or violin. 
I just remember the response being like, no, <laughs> probably just them. <laughs> they knew what out. they were in for. <laughs> yeah. Like sax. I think saxophone was the first and my mom and dad were like, fucking no way. <laughs> um, but then I remember hearing like drums or drum and, and I got really excited because I, I thought it was going to be like a whole drum kit, but they just gave you like a fucking snare drum. Oh, geez. And I remember playing it for a little bit and then just getting really bored. And then fast forward to about like 16 or 17, um, I was doing like sports up until that point, you know, as an athlete, like running and basketball. And then when I was about like 16 or 17, there was just this like crucial moment that stopped me in my tracks. I remember watching on TV. It was like VH1. It was like a, the hundred greatest blank of all time. Oh and yeah. I remember those. Do you remember that? It was yeah. like greatest rock bands and then soul bands. And then they had one on punk and Iggy and the Stooges popped on and it just like fucking changed my life. I mean, from that moment on, I was just all in. And then I didn't really start picking up with guitar until I was about 18 um, and had like one band in high school. And, you know, until I met, Brian, like a few years later, you know, this has really been like my first and only band. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, all right, Brian, what about you? What, what was your first instrument? How did you get into it? So I started on drums initially on drum kit. Um, I was actually, I grew up on Ludwig court. There were six houses on the street and four drummers. So next oh, wow. door to me, my neighbor, I know it was a very loud dead end street. <laughs> Named Ludwig. <laughs> Named Ludwig. Exactly. Um, so I went over to my next door neighbor's house. He had just gotten a kit and I played it for maybe 20 minutes. And I remember he had these, uh, I think they still make them. They're like these seventies style drum heads with oil between the heads. Like there's like one ply and a sheet of oil and then another ply. So it had this really deep, thuddy kind of seventies sound to it. Oh, wow. I remember just doing the kind of Hawaii five O thing down the toms and I was sold. I was like, I need to get a drum set. So <laughs> I got a kit a couple of weeks later and started playing and, um, in Burlington, Vermont, where I grew up, they were, they just had just started doing the whole rock camp thing for kids just starting out on instruments at this venue that has since closed down, um, in downtown Burlington and did that for a couple of years. Um, and also got into playing in the orchestra. There was a local like youth orchestra. So I, Oh, cool. A, a lot of time doing that, but, um, I don't know. It reached a point where they, they were kind of graduated levels of, um, d depending on how experienced you were as the ages progressed, it would go up and up to the point where it was the final orchestra. Um, and that was where we were playing like full on orchestral pieces. And I started to realize pretty quickly that once you get past those first few stages of trying to give everyone, it's almost like playing on like a little little kid soccer team where everyone gets equal time and it's all about having fun and everything else. <laughs> yeah. And then you get to the, the final level. And if you're the percussionist and an actual orchestra, 90% of the time you're waiting 400 measures through nine different time signatures to hit one triangle. Hit mess it up. You're like the biggest fucking idiot ever. <laughs> so everyone's thinking all you had to do is hit one time. Well, I'd wait for 400 bars through <laughs> nine different tempo changes. I don't know where the hell we are. So yeah, I, kind of, I fell out of love with that. And, um, yeah, it's kind of similar to Jared. I had played in some groups just with friends, you know, just like goofy cover stuff when I was in, middle school and high school but when the two of us got together that was really the first and only serious group oh that's pretty awesome now, now jared you're from new jersey though right 
Yeah, I grew up in New Jersey. I was born in New York City, but um, spent most of like my youth in New Jersey. And then I had gone to uh, Burlington sort of by way of default, like indirectly uh, with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. Um, I dropped out of school and we went to Vermont because uh, she uh, was in, she got enrolled into UVM. Okay. University of Vermont. And that's kind of around the same time I met Brian. Um, I was just, I kind of got really disillusioned with, uh, academics and dropped out and just wanted to put together a band. And, um, it was one, it's just one of those moments where you, uh, where something really changed, you know, that day that we got together, I remember it was just like, you know, half of the time us talking, and then the other half, we were just kind of playing and got into this groove where there was like an unspoken chemistry where uh, for me, it was just unlike anything else I had experienced. I felt like most of the time up to then jam, I hated jamming. Like I never, uh, uh I could never really interact in that way, but I just oh. found most of my experiences with other people playing music. It was like 95% talking and 5% playing. Oh, really? And, uh, with Brian, it was just like, yeah, something really kind of, uh, something really stuck. And, uh, yeah. So that was back in Burlington, like a while ago. All right. So I got to ask because I live there too. Where in New Jersey were you from? Um, I grew up like near New Brunswick in central New Jersey. Oh, like that's my 10 minutes. Man. No shit. Wow. Yeah. I, I, uh, well, I didn't, I spent 13 years. I did. I spent a lot of time up until fourth grade, moving up and down between Texas and Virginia and New Jersey and all. And then we settled down in, in uh, central Jersey in Branchburg, right? Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah, right on the, the edge of Somerset and Hunterdon counties. Wow, crazy. So, yeah, I used to go to New Brunswick all the time once uh, me and my buddy could, uh, could drive and we used to go see a whole bunch of bands. My uh, mm. good friend of mine was, he was in um, X number five and um, the fire still burns and a whole bunch of the, the New Brunswick punk bands that would play in the area. Wow, crazy. We used to go to New Brunswick to score drugs. <laughs> and um, Alf may have done it, that too. I don't know. <laughs> there were like certain times when you would go there were riskier than others. And we got like jumped one time, I remember, just going down the wrong street. Oh but I hear God. they've cleaned it up since. It's like more of a theater district now. I haven't been back there in years. Yeah, they tore down the old Melody Bar. Oh, wow. That, that's closed and it's, that's gone. Unfortunately, I haven't been there in a while, but I keep up with because uh, my my buddy Alf Bartone, like he played in a bunch of bands way back in the early '90s through probably just a few years ago. And uh, cool. So he's he's keeps me up on what's going on in the area and all. And he said that he his old stomping ground was was the Melody and the I think the Court Tavern and all. And then the uh, Melody's gone. Wow, crazy man. Sucks. So, all right, so you guys meet, and there's a chemistry involved. Did you always envision Vacant Lots to be a duo, or were you thinking about including other people? That's funny. Initially, we had envisioned um, a more traditional lineup of three or four people, but um, I think even from the, f the very first time we met, there was an additional guitar player, and we had tried out a couple different people, and we had never met before personally or in terms of playing music or anything, Jared and I, but even from the very first time that we 
played. It had, it felt, had this impression of it was the two of us, and then there was some other random person who we were trying to figure out if that would fit or not. Oh, wow. We went, we went through that cycle with a few different people and had this mindset that, you know, we ought to have a third person. And it, it started to just feel like this formality that we were doing because it felt like that was the traditional setup. And soon enough, we realized that it really worked best with just the two of us. So we kept that configuration ever since after only maybe a few months of meeting. I think the origins too, yeah, like going on what Brian was saying, like bands that we were, I guess, modeling ourselves off of, like the Rolling Stones or the Velvet Underground or television, where it's like two guitars, bass, and drums, mm-hmm. you know, with the exception of the Stones um, in that scenario. But, you know, and we, you know, for me, like I've, I've always thought of the guitar as like, you know, what Verlaine and Lloyd were doing in terms of rhythm and lead guitar. And it was interchangeable and interlocking. And there's like, you know, it's very like a geometry almost of music playing. Oh yeah. 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 And, uh, and then a rhythm section, you know, cause Brian's an incredible drummer. So to have someone who was, you know, playing bass, that could just hold down this, you know, uh, you know, kind of like the repetition and the rhythm section, but it just never, panned out every time well i mean and also just by the nature of the tours we were doing the band started to evolve like brian was standing up playing drums like bobby gillespie mo tucker style yeah yeah and uh when we tore our first ever tour in like 2010 was with sonic boom uh his band spectrum and we were the opening band and so to not be like a total pain in the ass um because they were backlining our gear brian had to you know change the setup and play sit down style Oh, and wow. so that kind of morphed us into, you know, he could cover a lot more of like the low end um, that way by the use of how he was playing the, the floor tom when he was sitting down. Um, okay. And we kind of just lost this idea of like, we need other people. You know, it was, we started to like reevaluate what that even means. And we started to just kind of work within this philosophy of, you know, within the limitations of two people, like what can we do? So if we need a bass sound, like one of us has to do it. Well, how are we going to do it? Well, let's fucking figure out, you know, a way to do it, whether it's Brian running some kind of program or me kind of tuning the guitar weird so I can pick up some of the low end or some of the, like the the bass kind of notes, like the blues Mm -hmm. guitar players used to do. Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of like, a lot of the evolution of the band's vision just kind of came in this very natural way of necessity and pushing each other to, instead of relying on other people, we just relied on ourselves. That's, you know, and it's funny that you mentioned that because one of the recurring themes that I've discovered in talking to people is that you get more creative if you have boundaries and you have limitations on certain things. Totally. Yeah. yeah, and that's the fact that there's only two of you is is your biggest barrier, your biggest limitation. And so to get the, a fuller sound, you guys have to be more creative. And it's true. I mean, also, like, the, the paradox is through limitations, it actually can be quite liberating. Yes, exactly. You know, like with anything in life, the few, you know, you can make the most out of the fewest components. And I think for us, that's just kind of been like our our mission almost is like minimal means maximum effect. Yes. You know, which is, you know, we haven't like invented that. I mean that like the less is more theory goes back to like, you know, the stooges and suicide and the velvet underground, but even like fifties recording. I mean, you hear stories where it's like a four track recorder. You're limited to, 
this amount and these are your, you know, your structures to work within. Exactly. Exactly. And so it forces you to be more creative. So totally. And, and, and the thing that I like too, is that in being creative, you guys have really found a unique voice because I, I find that a lot of bands that are a two, three piece band tend to fall in a, you know, a, a few categories. Like they, they tend to either play music similar to the black keys where it's stripped down super bluesy kind of thing, white stripes right. kind of thing, or they just drown themselves in, in effects. And it's just mm. this, you know, swell of just noise and you can't even tell what exactly what instrument is making it, but you guys right. managed to avoid doing both of those. I think early on, um, you know, the two things that we were really aware of as we were developing, um, our style was just, we wanted our own sound, but we didn't feel like we were interested in reinventing the wheel because we felt part of this like lineage of rock and roll. So it was sort of like, how do you pay homage to, or how do you recognize where you come from? But at the same time, how do you create your own sound? So there's some kind of original music where, you can be identified through someone hears a few bars of your music and go, Oh, that's the vacant lots or, Oh, that's Jimi Hendrix or that's craft work. So I think we were kind of doing this like parallel striving of, uh, you know, wanting to kind of, uh, like keep the tradition going, so to speak Mm -hmm. of rock and roll. Okay. But, but at the same time, you know, create our own style and sound within that network. So what is the significance to the name Vacant Lots? How did you guys come up with that? Um, we ha- uh, th- There was a time, I mean, we were like rehearsing or writing songs and we wanted to play. So we uh, live so, and go on tour, with, you know, and we realized we need to come up with a name, which I think was like the hardest fucking thing we had to do at that point. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, writing songs was just like, okay, you know, hit a fucking beat. Here's a guitar. Here are the two or three chords. And like, we're off. You know, right. Maybe like the lyrics were like, you know, really challenging, but the band name was tough. I remember like writing down a list of shit and Brian, like choosing the one that also oh. resonated the most with me. Um, Vacant Lots comes from The Soft Machine. Okay. It's like uh, a William Burroughs book. And there is this passage that really stuck out to me where he was talking about like a rack of rusty iron and concrete set in vacant lots and rubble dotted with chemical gardens. Wow. And I, I read that and I was just like, fuck, like that's it. And for me, just the duality in the name and also to, to fill a void, um, just felt like that was the right, the right name. And, and Brian loved it too. And I just think that day we were like, yeah, that's it. Definitely. You know, and that's, that's another recurring theme is that names are almost impossible to come up with now with, with the proliferation of, of streaming music and, and recording on your own home recording. Everybody's got a band and, and at this point everybody can, you know, find your band. So it's not like you can have, I don't know, like like in Spinal Tap, you know, everybody everybody was the originals, <laughs> right? <laughs> so you can't you can't do that anymore because somebody's gonna claim that online from you know some band in the Netherlands is gonna say, oh, we were this first. And 
Totally. It's yeah. Just yeah. Kind of become a, a, a mess. But yeah. At what point, while well, you guys were jam, well, not jamming, well, I'm going to take that word out. When you guys were playing. <laughs> Want that redacted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's make an edit here. Spice yeah. it. Let's start from the, the beginning here. Start so, from the top. So thank you guys for joining me today. I really appreciate that. <laughs> was there, when was, what was the moment where you guys thought, this is working. This, this can be what we do. For me, there were like two moments, definitely like right, right in the beginning. I mean, we were, rehe- I mean, not only thanks to Leah, but like, thanks to Brian's mom and dad, like we, <laughs> we made so much fucking noise in their basement because <laughs> we play, we played like six days a week for like two years. Oh my gosh. And it was just nonstop. And they gave us this, like, you know, we asked for like a flower pot and, and it, it turned into like a garden, you know, we just like occupied so much time and space. Wow. Um, and I remember like just initially there was like over the course of a year, we were just, we went right. I mean, within the first few months that we were playing, we were very fortunate to not just have Brian's basement, um, where he lived, but there was this old tomato factory that was turned into a recording studio called big orange studios. Oh, wow. And it was out in the middle of fucking nowhere. Like, was it, was it for Jen's Brian? That was, yeah. It was okay. For Jen's farm country. And it was just this massive, like huge barn. And we went there and it was run by this dude, Chris Clark, uh, who used to live in Burlington. And he just kind of like, it was like adult supervision. Like he just <laughs> like realized that we were just like, okay, they know what they want to do. And we were just like, can you just record this for us? You know, we don't need like a producer or a mixer or any of that shit. Like we can do all that. Um, or at least we thought we could at that <laughs> moment, Right. <laughs> but we would just get really stoned and would just like record these like early, like, you know, demos and early recordings and, you know, songs like our first single confused and Cadillac and high and low came from like those sessions. So within the first year wow. or so of the band, we were just kind of like pressing, you know, ourselves to, you know, get into a studio and, 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 you know, test out and experiment with ideas. So that for me was definitely like that year or so where we were like really creating shit all the time. And it wasn't just like, let's just see if this is any good. We were just like, let's fucking record it and just, you know, try to take it as seriously as we could. Um, you know, not everything sticks, but at least we, we challenged ourselves. And then I remember, um, the way we came up with 6am was for me, like, the turning point or like, I think there's a Greek word for this, like peripatia. I think it's like Greek tragedy where it's like, um, I guess the most popular one is like when, you know, Oedipus knows he's like, he fucked his mom and he like rips his eyes out. It's like the turning point in the story where like the main character realizes something. Um, 
I think that moment for us was just like a holy fuck moment. Um, I remember Brian, it was like the first time we started experimenting with electronics. Okay. And Brian like moved away from the drums and set a drum beat and had this like bass line locked in and was like testing sounds off the, off the mic. And I put my phone in the very back of the room to record the session, not thinking anything, you know, I mean, I just knew that this was a new sound, so I wanted to record it. Yeah. And I remember just cranking everything up on my silver tone and plugging the guitar in and just trying to turn my Gretsch guitar into like, like, how do I make it sound like Martin Rev, you know, it's organ sound. And I took the capo and just put it in like the highest up position I could and started playing like one chord and Brian started singing and it was like 25 minutes later or something. And I remember listening back and that was, I mean, like pretty much like note for note how 6am got recorded or got written. That's awesome. That that's really cool. I love stories like that. So, was it a similar moment for you, Brian, when you when it just all kind of came together and you're like, "Yeah, this is this is for real." Yeah, for me, it was kind of similar. Those first building blocks between um, just playing nonstop. I think six days a week is probably accurate. We were down there constantly working, and uh, Jared had songs that he had worked out already that we put through the paces of getting to a point where we could really perform them. And then we were just working on new material as well. And that process always just seemed to be, I mean, of course, um, from time to time we would hit a wall with something and need to come back to it. But I felt like in that time it was so productive and efficient in terms of creating from nothing, this whole catalog of music that we were ready to bring out into the world and, taking that next step into playing even just locally at clubs in Burlington and then also doing that session at Big Orange Studio just was a good affirmation of of um, of everything that we had been working for. Like it, it was all in our head at that point. And once we were able to really bring it out into the world in those two forms, it really felt like we were on something. So what's the music scene like in, in Burlington? Because your style of music, like, like, like that psych, new wavy kind of music. That's not what I think of when I, it's not the first thing that comes to mind. I should say when I think of Vermont, you know, lumberjack music or something. (laughs) Yeah. It's a lot of like jam music, like fish is obviously from there. So it's a lot of like grateful dead, um, weekly, whatever cover night downtown and bluegrass (laughs) and stuff like that. Um, it's interesting. I feel like it's probably the case in a lot of, towns where it's a a fairly small population but you've got a big university right in town where you get each year this fresh crop of kids who um, are into all sorts of stuff coming from all you know all corners of the world so within that 
scene within the schools there's Champlain College and then the, the State School University of Vermont is right there and I feel like from there um, you end up getting most of the interesting stuff that's happening in town um, and that's obviously kind of volatile depending on uh, the year really <laughs> because with yeah. Vermont it's like once you're done with school there's really not a huge incentive to stay but in that four-year period you could have all sorts of cool things happening and, and people branching out from there and also with the scene that small, it really came down to just having good promoters. Um, there was a group called, they called themselves Tick Tick that I think they eventually moved to Maine, but for a period when we were first starting to play, they would organize a lot of shows and they just had a really good sense of, um, you know, just had their finger on the pulse in terms of music that was happening at the time and, and getting pretty big bands at the time to come through. And we were able to play a lot of cool shows through them at that time. But, um, as of now, I, I don't really know. I think it fluctuates a lot in Burlington. Maine. That's n not another, another place I wouldn't imagine bands flocking to for the music. I know Maine. I, I've never actually been to <laughs> me either. Strange place. I think. <laughs> yeah. You, you, the farther like Northeast you go, I think the, the weird, the more it becomes like you're going Southeast too. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like for me, like Florida, the farther South you go in Florida, the more it becomes New York. <laughs> totally. so what, all right so what's the songwriting process like for you guys are you collaborating a lot or one 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 of you bringing in an idea and then just working on it to flesh it out what's what's the process like i think it varies from record to record um i mean we both do a lot of writing in isolation um or individually and then we'll I mean, and then we'll bounce files back and forth to each other. Okay. Um, then there's songs like 6am where we're just in the room hammering out ideas. Um, or like the records we made with Anton where there'll be fragments and we'll spend like the week before we saw Anton in Berlin, uh, to make the record Berlin or exit EP. in Amsterdam, you know, fleshing out our ideas. Yeah. So in the same room, um, a lot of enters on our new record was both of us kind of having a demo, sending it to the other person. And I mean, I think that's the benefit of having two like co-songwriters or two producers in a band is, you know, you're really, you were with someone who can really heighten the strengths and kind of, you know, twist the weaknesses to turn them into strengths. Okay. Um, and I feel like, you know, in a vacuum or if you're just creating your own music or without a collaborator, um, you can tend to get this, like, I don't know. I just think of it like a numbing sensation where you, there is no more value judgment. You can't tell if it's good or bad or if you like it or you don't like. And I think mm -hmm. Brian and I have just found this collaborative way where this kind of like unit structure where we're both writing and sharing this mutual vision. So the songs really, they might start off from, you know, the hand of one of us, but then we kind of like sculpt it together. And I think that's like, that was like the largest component with inner zone. 
and even just now we, we you know you, you'd think you know living in the same city we'd get to you know spend more time together but obviously with like coronavirus and shit happening it's like back to the isolation yeah zone you know well and then i think the band being just a duo also can also help you out in that aspect going back to your minimal means maximum effect aesthetic where you're working on something you know you send it to jared jared's working on something he sends it to you you don't have to send it to the third and fourth guy and then one of them doesn't like it and so you oh well we're not gonna work on that one it's just the two of you if one doesn't exactly. like it, no no, that's that's exactly right. Because as soon as you add more and more people, it just gets exponentially, you know, into that game of too many cooks in the kitchen. With two mm-hmm. of us, there's already enough. Like cause we're both very particular and know what we like and what we don't like, and we share a lot of the same sensibilities. So there's usually um, always room in the middle to find some happy medium. But I think with even a third person, it would make it almost impossible. Um, and just the two of us, it's already like we have like four <laughs> egos for each of us. <laughs> so. I don't even know if anyone else could pit up with. <laughs> <laughs> now, how did your uh, the relationship with Alan Vega begin? Oh man, Alan was the fucking greatest. We um so back in like I think 2013 or yeah 2013 we were asked to be part of this like fucking Christmas record with like Iggy Pop was going to be on it and Psychic Ills and oh, a few wow. other bands. And, um, we were really excited and then it like dawned on us, like we've never really done a cover song before. Like maybe, I think we've covered a Shirelle song or something or like a Lake Ray song live once, but, um, like what the fuck Christmas song are we going to do? And (laughs) I remember me and Brian were just like digging through like obscure records and then found this record from the eighties. It was like Z records, like anti Phil Spector's Christmas album style record. (laughs) And on that record were two tracks. It was an Alan Vega song and then a suicide song. And the Alan Vega song was no more Christmas blues. And it's like this slow, it's like a fucking ballad on painkillers after you've like, you know, like two people in your family died and you just broke up with your girlfriend type of music. (laughs) It's just super like depressing blues Christmas music. And I loved it. I was just like, Oh my God, Brian, like check out this song. Like it's, it's fucking so good, but we should just give it like more of a, like a revved up dance beat, just kind of flip it instead of it being this like slow kind of song, right? uh, Sad song we kind of made it something you can dance to with the dark lyrics. We're keeping the lyrics intact. And, um, we recorded it and it got released. was friends with Alan's Vegas wife, Liz Lamoree on Facebook okay. and had sent her a message with the song, like this, you know, my style of this like long letter of like, 
you know, what Alan means to us and how, you know, how much, you know, suicide, like suicide is the Beatles to us basically. Oh, cool. And, and, and the last line was like, hope we didn't butcher this track. <laughs> we just, we wanted to share it with you and Alan to my surprise. She wrote back almost immediately saying that she was playing it for Alan, that Alan was like really enjoying it. Um, he loved the, if I remember like, the kind of the whole symphony and beat and guitars. And she, and then she prefaced it with like, he really doesn't even like that much newer music. So like, oh. you don't understand, like this is a, you know, huge thing. And for us, we were just, you know, I was like calling Brian, like freaking out, like, holy <laughs> shit, Alan Vegas, like listen to our fucking music. Like yeah. we can quit now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then like we got into this dialogue and, she said, Alan was like, invite them over. Wow. And I was like, when they're on tour and we were like the week or two later, we were going on tour with Dean Wareham and we were playing the Bowery ballroom. And I was living at Boston at the time. Brian was still in Burlington. And when we came into town, like a few hours before sound check, we went over to Alan's apartment, uh, downtown Manhattan. And, uh, I just, I remember like, like kind of shaking a little bit and like sweating, I think, because I thought he was going to be this like intense, vicious, um, <laughs> person. And he ended up being just like the coolest, nicest, uh, funniest person. Like I'd ever met. He like came in. He's like, how are you doing? Are you guys okay? Like, you know, can I get you anything? I was like, holy shit. He's so nice. Oh man. That's um, awesome. And that was just like a huge moment for us. And that kind of just forged this friendship and mentorship. I mean, he was like a mentor to us. I remember like one of the, my favorite moments ever was going over to, I lived one stop away from him across the East river. The whole time. Um, yeah. Like oh, I, wow. you can just take the two or three I'm in Brooklyn and he's, you know, like in the financial district. So you could just take one stop over to wall street from where I live and, um, one of the, like a few weeks before he died, one of the last times, I think I was one of the last people to see him alive. Um, wow. before he was in the hospital and I went over there because he was going to sing on this track, uh, the last track on our second album, endless night, um, which wasn't called suicide note yet. It was, it had a different title. I think it was like sister Anne or some other title working okay. title at the time. And I went over there just to play him the track because he was going to go in the studio and record vocals and write his own lyrics for it. Oh, wow. And we're sitting on like the couch and I'm playing him the song and, uh, which was like connected to a Bluetooth speaker from my phone, which he was totally mystified with. <laughs> um, but didn't fuck with like modern technology. Like he couldn't, I, I tried to show him like Spotify and he was just like not interested, but he loved the fact that we could listen to like Albert Eiler, Farrell Sanders or John Coltrane within like four minutes, wow. you know, like we could just bounce around. Yeah. But anyways, we're playing the, like I, I played him this track and he's, you know, looking out the window and kind of like, you know, with this like right hand clenched and kind of like coming up with lyrics
was a really profound moment. Um, also, he he asked me if I wanted to drink. It was like three o'clock in the afternoon, and came back with like an absolute vodka and poured like three fourths of like a pint glass. <laughs> and I was like, Alan, and he's like, Don't worry, you're young. You can, you know, you can handle this shit. I'm like, It's three o'clock in the afternoon, and he's like. Anyways, I was like more than drunk, um, you know, listening to the song. And then Alan goes, can we start from the, you know, can we listen to the whole record? And I was like, man, that's just like, that's fucking amazing. And so we started from the first song and it was already mixed. Everything was like pretty much mixed except for that. And the last song was mixed, you know, because we wanted to just give him this kind of like bedrock to just sing on top of. And then we would go back and me and Brian mixed that whole record and we would kind of tweak it with his vocals. And I just remember, you know, one of my last moments with Alan was listening to our finished record, Endless Night. And so in between that, there were just a lot of times, uh, you know, and he was just such a supporter of the band, you know, always asking what me and Brian was up to and wanting to hear it and showing us his lyrics and his handwritings and drawings. Oh, just wow. fucking, just a total honor, man. Just like, you know, to even be that close into an intimate level of his process was just one of the greatest. That's, I, I mean, I can't even imagine sitting there drunk with Alan Vega, listening to your own music and having him like it. Yeah. I, God. Yeah. It was really validating and an honor because I think, you know, when you're in the presence of such a legend or such a icon of, of music, Um, there's definitely this feeling of like, you know, you're not even close to being equal. I'm not even saying we are or even remotely, but just to be appreciated that he understood that we weren't just trying to like rip off suicide, that we were actually striving for our own sound, but we were connected to the lineage and he got that. It was just an amazing, like, it's like fuel, you know, like you're kind of, um, you know, I, I could imagine maybe that's something similar to like what, you know, maybe Dylan had when he met Woody Guthrie where you meet your hero, your musical hero, and they're, you know, not an asshole. And yeah, exactly. Really inspiring. And, you know, and like your music too. It just, that was just the greatest for me and Brian, you know, really fueling. I love hearing stories like that. Cause like you said, you always hear the old adage, never meet your heroes. And then yeah, fortunately when you do, and they're, and they're decent people and they like what you're doing. That's, it's just, there's nothing else like it. Yeah. It's, it's, I I mean, I've heard that so many times and there's definitely a fear factor involved in, um, I would, I would just, my advice would be the complete opposite, like write to your heroes. Collaboration is key. And the worst thing that would happen is they don't write back to you. Yeah. You know, and I, we've been really fortunate to work with some people that we, admire or whose records made us want to make records that's um yeah i'm looking at some of the the list of some of the guys you've 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 all worked with in in one way or another you got uh you know pete kember sonic boom obviously alan vega dean wareham anton newcomb everybody from uh, black rebel motorcycle club you know that's just it's a hell of a list of people you guys have have collaborated with or toured with it's it's I'm I'm amazed by it. Do you guys still, uh, I don't know, for lack of a better word, do you guys ever fanboy on any of these people anymore? Still, or is it kind of like kind of par for the course now? You just you're you're meeting some of these um, and and working with some of these amazing artists. I feel like, man. I mean, I'm such a fan of music, like of rock and roll, and 
like the first person we ever sent our music to wasn't even like a finished record. It was like demos and we sent it to Dean Wareham and we were like, you know, got offered to open up for Dean and Britta uh, for New Year's Eve and tour with Dean. And I just, I, I think it was, it's like a sort of encouragement, you know, like an older generation, younger generation of artists. And, you know, Dean wrote back saying like, yeah, he's a fan. And I just felt like, that was really cool to hear because it's not just like a one-sided thing, you know, but yeah. the, the music and, and in a similar way, like, you know, Dean was friends with Lou Reed and Sterling Morrison. And wow. so bands that influenced him. And I think there's just like this lineage of music or art where, or Warhol and Lou Reed, where you're, there's something mutually inspiring about the two parties, but like the older generation to some extent has this not duty, but this kind of like, this opportunity to kind of give back to a younger generation. So we've been lucky that like, you know, cause we're really hard on ourselves and we work really hard and, you know, and, and sometimes we're just like, does this suck? Or like, are we fucking crazy? Or is this really good? Yeah. Um, so it just kind of keeps you on track and keeps you going like you're on the right path. And I think all the people that we've worked with in some way or another has kind of inspired us to keep going. Um, through their support and through their like mentorship. And also the music industry fucking sucks because there's so many sharks and there's people that take advantage or are manipulative. And so to have some of the guidance, like people like Anton Newcomb, you know, to ask advice to, or Dean Wareham has yeah. been instrumental to us of not getting fucked over. That's a good point. I didn't even think about that. So I feel really grateful that like, you know, some of our friends are just, you know, they're like in our record collection. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's, oh gosh. So and I hope we can inspire other bands too. Like I hope like when we're older, you know, we, we inspire bands and then we can help out in some way too, you know? Yeah. Well, and just, and just keep that cycle going. Mm -hmm. I, Brian, I've got a question for you specifically. Okay. When you guys are working out new music, Mm-hmm. Do you think about how you're going to play it live? Because you played synth and drums live. Is that a factor yeah. when you're songwriting? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I do think of it going into the demo process and as we start to build and refine um, in a collaborative sense once we have that original demo finished. Um, and inevitably, uh, the way it'll end up happening with pretty much every song we've done that's been in that synth world um, is it morphs one way or another as we start to play it live. Like we'll go through that process of endlessly returning to it in a demo form, get it recorded, have a studio version ready to go. And then ultimately when we are able to get together, um, because again, most of the time it's happening remotely where we'll bounce stuff back and forth and do it. Yeah. in kind of an isolated fashion once we are able to get in the room together and try and work it out and figure out how much we can do with four hands because <laughs> Jared will be playing guitar and I've got all these gadgets that mostly have minds of their own to some extent where I can <laughs> try and teach them to know when things are supposed to happen but they can be they're, they're not always willing to obey the rules. So I try and get it to a point where they won't run off and it won't be a total disaster on stage, but there's also room to have a lot of as much of the different timbres and the, the whole palette of sound that might be on the original recording. So ultimately um, as we start to play it live too, that's its own 
process of refining. We'll play it live one night, maybe realize that one part is need to change the part or change the sound or add or subtract. And at the end of it, after maybe a a full tour of playing a new song, it almost becomes a brand new. I mean, I guess you could think of it as a remix in a way, but in a lot of ways, it'll be such a drastic shift once we're able to get it to feel right live that you could almost record it again and it's a brand new song and i, I kind of like that process the slow transformation that happens as we kind of tool it around live so, so you guys aren't uh concerned with with keeping it true to the to the recorded version then well i always go in with that intent i always think <laughs> well we can try <laughs> for <laughs> our fans are paying good money and they have the expectation of hearing the exact studio version so let's get it down verbatim but oh well I, i'll help you out because I'm the exact opposite. I love it when a, when a band, I, I, when I want to see a band live, I want to see them take the recorded version and, and make it, I don't know, just expand it or, or, or slightly tweak it, make it sound a little bit different. Totally. Yeah, I was going to say, I come from the ex, it, it complete extreme where, like, you know, I love bands like Joy Division and Jesus and Mary Chain where you hear live recordings and even Suicide and then you hear their studio recordings it's like what the fuck yeah so you get two different experiences and i feel like with us so many times people say wow your records sound different than the live show and my natural response is like we know like (laughs) I, i i feel you know the intent when we go to make a record and the intent of when we go to play live you know there is some crossover and similarities but on the whole, like they're two different experiences. And I just think that separation of powers or that separation of vision is like just so much more appealing to me as a music listener, as an artist. Um, and again, it's not, I mean, it's also just kind of what happens, you know, I think there's only so much you can really control and guide. And then the rest is just, you know, you have to do what feels right and what is honest, and, you know, and direct to the music. Yeah. And with a duo, it's, it's again, being creative with the limitations because you may not be able to reproduce exactly what you recorded with four hands, like you were saying, Brian. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So the new album interzone, is that a nod to joy division? Yeah. And William Burroughs, um, which is goes back to like the band name coming from Burroughs. Like right. that was just the first thing I read of Burroughs is inner zone. Um, it's still my favorite book of his for us. It's, you know, again, it's duality, you know, the, this kind of idea or theme that we return to a lot. Um, it's kind of strange because the first title that we had come up with for inner zone was actually going to be called isolation. Oh, wow. <laughs> and again, I think that was an even more obvious joy division reference. Yeah. I, you know, we're aware of it. It wasn't as direct as it may, you know, it's not like we look through like joy divisions discography and said like, let's steal that. Right. You know? But it was cool that that reference is there. You know, they're definitely one of our favorite bands. Um, but yeah, the word, I mean, inner zone, I mean, we're kind of in an inner zone now, like with this pandemic going on, but for me, it just had this very like bulletproof meaning and really summed up, um, like symbolically duality. And we both really liked it, you know, as like a theme or an idea. Was there a different approach to this album compared to your prior work? Did you, uh, consciously try to do anything different? I think we always try to push the music forward. I think that's 
you know, we're both really good about, um, you know, there's certain principles that remain the same or ideas that we love and we return to or repeat in the music. But we're, I feel like we're really self-aware about um, not just the limitations that we work within, but also uh, like the threshold of how far we could take it. For example, like Departure, we had the songs and the energy and the attitude and the like vision and this kind of like, I mean, I felt like for the, you know, the first couple of records we made, like that was going to be it. Like, would I even be around after this? You know, if this was the last record, I mean, sometimes you hear people go like, you know, give it your, you know, play. It's like your last game ever, you know, like a basketball or something. Well, I sort of took that, but into the studio, like what if this is the only record or last record you ever made? Yeah. Like, how are you going to stand by this shit? And I remember on departure, we were like the best person to take it to that next level of like, you know, where our threshold is and then just going a little bit further with Sonic Boom. And with this record, there was this moment in the studio where we had like four or five days in between our East and West Coast tour with the Dandy Warhols last year. And my friend, uh, our friend Ted Young, who engineered all of our records, um, basically, gave us the keys he was gonna be like out of town like i think he was like a fucking arkansas or somewhere it's like or kansas or some weird fucking some just place far away and he's like i'm gonna be out of town but you guys can get in there and do whatever the fuck you want just don't break anything oh like like really don't break anything because um so we got that like warning and ted's like the coolest dude ever so he gave us our key the keys to the studio we go in there and we're like thinking of like how we're going to mix it and work on it and describing the sound. And I was talking to Brian about this, like, you know, uh, describing the sound in a very like almost like producer kind of abstract language. And Brian's like, dude, check this out. I want to play you something. And he, you know, puts on country girl by boy harsher. Oh, and I remember like, like walking out of the studio and coming back like a half an hour, an hour later, just because like, I was just so wrapped up with like this emotion of, I've never heard it before, but it was definitely the sound quality or the sound production. Like the music's great. And I love the songs, but it was just this kind of overall sound quality that I loved. And Brian was just able to really accurately pinpoint, um, kind of what we were discussing into something very contemporary, like a, like the sound quality that exists. And we did some research and found Maurizio Baggio who mixed and produced, uh, some of the recent boy harsher and soft moon records who I've been a fan of for a long time and Brian too. Um, and we contacted him to collaborate with mixing inner zone. And it was like an into it was like a total intuition where, you know, he mixed it and now the way inner zone sounds is completely, you know, how we had hoped it would sound.
That's fantastic. You know, I hear so many bands saying the exact opposite, where eh, it's just it's not done. It's, I don't like how it came out, and so we we scrapped it and had to redo it. So uh, hearing that you guys were able to just nail it, that that's fantastic. Yeah, we're both like r- ridiculous perfectionists. <laughs> like I don't think either one of us could live because we never let would let it down. We would just totally you know, rag on the other person. If anything ever <laughs> passed through the kind of like, uh, you know, the quality control and like, a, like in, in a way that neither one of us were really both happy with, which is also the benefit of having like two co-producers where you're, you know, you're, it's not just like one, you know, or four or five, but it's two people who are kind of, you know, you know, on the assembly line. With the new album, the synthesizer plays it, it seems to me like a, a more of a prominent role than in the previous records, which were to me a little bit more uh, guitar forward. Was that part of the, the, the process of the, the sound that you guys were hearing? Cause I think it's, it's really awesome. It's less, less on the psych side and, and a little more on a, on a, on a, like maybe a new order side. Yeah. It, it's a part of the recording process that has definitely um, changed the most from, one recording session to the next in terms of what's done just spontaneously in the studio after all the songs have been written. Because with a lot of the electronics that we'll have done on the demo, ultimately it becomes a game of just treating it in the studio with a compressor or a preamp or whatever it may be, but the part is already there. Right. Uh, but with each session, it seems we've been more and more prone to adding additional tracks after those bass recordings are already in the session and just experiment with various synth parts. This time around, we had an old ARP synth um, and some other just like drum machines and stuff. That in, in the last phase, after pretty much everything else was done, we just threw some paint at the wall and tried to figure out what would work. And with synthesizers, it's really easy to do that because you can just sit there and move knobs around all day. And having that endless palette of options is is really interesting to me just letting the track run on loop and just wait until something really magical happens and then capture just that moment. There doesn't seem to be an extended track on the album like like Funeral Party or Make the Connection which you know respectively 8 and 10 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Was that a conscious decision to to keep everything a little more concise? Yeah. I think we, we always had this like we keep ta- we keep going back to it. Like all of our records have eight songs and they, they come close to 30 minutes. Like we have this little mantra, like eight songs, 30 minutes, make it bulletproof. Oh, nice. And it's kind of like this like mental tattoo. Um, I, I think like for us, the goal is always to, you know, you want people to listen to the whole record over and over again, but it's also really important to listen to each song over and over again. And I think, I, I just, I don't want to waste anyone's time like ever. Like that's my, my, my worst fear is just, uh, time to me is really precious. It's a really precious thing. And I feel like, you know, it's not like, I don't, I don't feel like people should listen to our music. I feel like if people listen to our music, it's there's, I have this immense gratitude that, you know, you're giving, uh, you're kind of exchanging, or sharing and, and potentially inspiring or changing someone else's life with your music that you should never take advantage of it. And I think being concise is, you know, as is an important factor to our aesthetic as like an instrument. 
you know, time is like another, but we, you know, it's only two dudes. So it's not like we have like a few other people in the group, but I feel like time is like one of those factors for me. And I, and most of the time, you know, I, I think if you're making a statement or having something to say, like it doesn't need to be six minutes or five minutes to say it. That's a good point. And I have that same feeling with this podcast. No, nobody has to listen to this. So I'm, I'm really grateful when people do. Definitely. I, it's just that, you know, and it's like the world is so oversaturated with like everyone doing something or, or, or online or, or advertising. And, you know, even now more so with the pandemic where it's not just like exactly. major bands where you're seeing an ad, you know, like an, uh, like some kind of marketing or ad for, you know, MGMT or, or, you know, uh, you know, Lucinda Williams. It's like just some random person on Instagram or Twitter who, I mean, anyone could like sponsor or, you know, pay for ads where this, you know, online now is just kind of leveled the field and it's just made it more saturated. So even yeah. having said that, I just feel like quality is more important now than ever. Oh, absolutely. And it's like, not really like for me, it's just like, what are you trying to do? 45 minutes. I'll have to just say, like, I've heard this from record labels and managers and people like the record should be 45 minutes. Fuck that. That was something for the nineties, you know, like there are no rules now you can make the record as long as you fucking want. Exactly. So I don't even know where that, I mean, I know where that came from, but now it's like, it doesn't matter. The record should be good and it should just, it should, you know, capture your vision of what you're trying to do with music. Yeah. And if that takes 20 minutes, if it takes an hour and a half. Exactly. So what have you guys been doing during this lockdown? Cause the, the album's coming out at the end of June and you can't tour. We wrote another album yes, and, and we're, and we're becoming alcoholics. Nice. <laughs> so Excellent. we, we can thank Corona for that. Like yes. that's what we did in isolation. The virus and not the beer. Yeah. <laughs> oh, excellent. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, that so we've album, got that going for ourselves. Right. So the new album, Inner Zone will be out on the 26th. The next album will be out on the 27th. Yeah, right. <laughs> Midnight of the next day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I know I've kept you about an hour at this point, man. I've, cool. I've had a blast. Thank you guys so much for, for coming on and, and uh, telling me about the, the new album and, and how you guys met. I mean, this is a really cool story. Thanks, and thanks for your time, too. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Absolutely, and thank you, Leah, again. Thank you, Leah. Thanks, Leah. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 